his newly assigned position in the Special Services Division of the Bridgeport Police Department, Billy Chase interfaced on a number of cases with federal law enforcement officials. Billy was a cop in Bridgeport, where advanced training was as common as a crimeless day. How does an undercover with no formalized training get started? In Billy's case, it was go where you know best, the streets. Billy reconnected with the comings and goings of the streets of his youth back to inner city playgrounds where he once shot hoops and into the strip bars and taverns that warehouse information about drug dealers, junkies, and prostitutes. Most of Billy's contacts thought he had gone overseas to play ball. This wasn't the age of social media or cell phones. You could disappear or create a story that no one could check online. It's rare to have audio from 30 years ago, but the interview with Billy was very telling. The names of drug crews and the feds. It wasn't like Billy worked one case. He was almost a schizophrenic undercover, bouncing from drug dealers to junkies, soaking up information in a city consumed with crack cocaine. I'm astonished that Billy could even keep all of these names straight. Here's Billy again talking about his work. See, the thing with crack, a lot of people got confused with that crack thing. When I came across crack, it was in 1985, 85, 86. The guy's name was Larson Burke, big heroin dealer over at PT. I mean, on Father Panic. Anyway, I don't know if you remember little John Davis. John Davis, he controlled the PT area and some of the east side with, um, with, with the crack thing, you know what I'm saying? But the thing was, people thought, oh, crack cocaine, you know, you, you gotta have a laboratory and all this. Now, this guy here, Larson Burke, I remember I was making a buy with him, he used to beat the guy, the guy, the guy had his own plane, he's in his plane talking to us from the plane, you know. He'll be down shortly when he lands and all that shit, and he'll come down and hook us over the package. So anyway, I'm talking to Larson, I'm like, yo, what's up with this crack thing? You know, we, even law enforcement, we were ignorant, you know. Let's so give me an education, you know. So he's telling me, look, you don't need a laboratory crack. Put me into cocaine, baking soda, some water, a little coffee pot, and a stove. Boom, you got crack cocaine. Everybody thought crack cocaine was this thing where, you know, you got to have a laboratory set up like you're making. You know, like, was that? Oh, yeah, man, it's a big deal over on, on the West End. I'm going to talk about that. Okay, I'm Sanchez, but, but the, yeah, I'm just trying to study crack. He wasn't, Sanchez didn't deal with no crack. He wasn't with the crack. He was just straight up cocaine, you know. And uh, he, had the, he had the best cocaine out there. He had the best cocaine going Where did it come from? Um, he had a connection coming out of um, Florida. They were making trips down. We, we, we kind of were watching them, and they were making trips to Florida. You know, he'd send guys down. To, you get word that these dudes was out of town. Now, when they're out of town, you get word when they got back that they went down to pick up a load, a few keys or whatever, and they come back. Stuff was coming out of Florida. They had a hookup with some dudes down in Miami, you know? So that's supposed, that's where it was coming from. But we never could. getting into the city? Driving it. They were bringing it in on the train. They were bringing it in on the... He was smart, man. He never did the same. It seemed like, he, you know, we started really watching him, man. We'd have mules. He had mules working for him. You know, a mule is a person that you got that's going to carry your shit for you. You pay this person X amount of dollars, they're going to carry it for you. So they make $1,000. They make a trip with two, three, four 
10 kilos of cocaine and make maybe $500 off of each kilo. So, you know, you're looking at maybe two, dollars $3,000 for a trip. They take the train up, they use girls as mules, you know, some of his underlings, they use the girlfriends as mules. Man, you, man, you know how much stuff they got coming out of Florida, man. Right. It, 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 oh, man. Yeah, I, 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 um, I think they did fly once in a while. You know, they would never, they would, man, they would like police department, man. Consistently inconsistent. You wouldn't know when it was coming in, man. You wouldn't, one thing you know, they never was dropping. The crews that Billy went after were connected into a who's who of organized crime. You had the Dix brothers, Carl, Alfred, and Danny. They controlled all the heroin provided by the Gambino crime family in New York on the east side of Bridgeport. The Dix brothers were also tied into the Gotti family via John Gotti's brother, Gene. But inside Bridgeport, the biggest crew was the number one family and Mariano Sanchez. So how did that work? Was this some warehouse in the city someplace? Yeah, it was where, yeah, man. Yeah. He had, he had, he was leaving a different places. You know, he had 13, man, we got, that was the most successful wiretap in Connecticut history, man. We got 13 people that did time. 13 people. Each one of those 13 people was, was a possibility of where he could have housed. You know what I'm saying? He would change up. You know, it seemed like he housed in one place. We would hear it was there. Watch this place wasn't there no more. It's in another location. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you know, they'd have to go to pick it up, of course, and cut it up. But, um, yeah, man, it, it, the dude was smart. The guy was smart, man. I mean, he went, you, many, man, this dude went years, man, without being touched. Look at Kojak. Kojak didn't get touched for this shit. Years, man, without being touched. So nobody fucked with him? What happens if he did? Oh, we had, oh, yeah, he, 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 he was supposedly responsible for a couple of murders. Supposedly, but something we could never prove, you know. Somebody did something. To, you know, he got arrested one time for assault because somebody did something to his sister, his brother, something. He beat him up with a bat down in Seaside Park and tried to kill him. And then he got arrested for assault, and then he paid the guy off not to testify against him or something. And uh, he didn't go to jail for it. I mean, that's how much, yeah, I mean, the guy, he was cocky, man. he had a lot of power. And always wore t-shirt, jeans, and sneakers, man. You never seen him dressed up. Always t-shirt, right. the number one family, they had jackets and blazers. And little black jackets on, yeah. Most of the Latinos were black. Most of the Latinos, he had some black. Matter of fact, he still got a, he had a black that was down with him that we couldn't touch it. I knew it, and I had this dude in day camp, man. Cookie Brown was his name. Knew he was down with him, making crazy money. He was supplying Sikorsky. You know, he had a good job, but he was smart. He was smart, like right? Supplying people. Oh, yeah, man. Supplying. He was supplying Sikorsky. But you couldn't touch him because, you, you know what I'm saying, it was hard to catch him. You know what I mean? You had that information, man, but it's one thing to, to actually prove and have enough probable cause to go ahead and get a warrant for somebody. You would hear this. But as far as substantiating things, it was like speculation, but it was good speculation. You know what I'm saying? Where it's like, boom, I know he's doing it, just being catching them dirty. And he wasn't one of the really main players, but he was one of the black people that he had working for. Him. He was down with, he was down with, everybody knew he was down with Mariano. And he never got caught. He never got, I believe we got him on the wire maybe one time. We ain't never, we ain't never, we never were able to catch him. This other dude, um, Benny, uh, matter of fact, it's Bailey's nephew, Ron Bailey's nephew. 
and he had arrested Billy the cop. Billy the cop's nephew now. Mariano Sanchez built a ruthless drug machine that evoked fear on the west end of Bridgeport. Sanchez even made number one family jackets with a logo as a form of branding on the streets. Those who knew Mariano saw him more as an engaging, charismatic young man from the West End. He was like a Robin Hood figure selling dope to wealthy suburban kids entering his turf and spreading his wealth among the neighborhood. It was the church inside the West End that tried to no avail to stop the number one family. Monsignor Campagnon and Father Villamide sent a petition to the mayor of Bridgeport at the time, Tom Busey. Busey himself describes being completely caught off guard by the crack dealing crews. Bridgeport in 1985 was seeing progress in its development. Neighborhoods were gentrifying. We were building affordable homes. And approximately after probably 1987, a substance which was unknown to us and to our police and state police and the feds, crack cocaine exploded on our streets. And we saw a substantial increase in violent crime. The murder rate jumped from like, you know, 20 murders a year, which is high, but up to over 60, approaching 70. And it was mostly related to territorial disputes between those organizations that were controlling the crack cocaine coming into the city and distributing it in the city. It took years for a joint effort by the federal, the FBI in particular, drug enforcement agencies, state police and local police, uh, to finally get their arms around the problem. The situation with crack cocaine, as I'm sure you're aware, is that it was a cheap form of cocaine. I was blindsided by it. Um, we weren't prepared for it. And um, you go back in those years, and it was it just ex like exploded out of nowhere. Where did crack cocaine come from? It was, you know, it was a smokable form of, and, you know, highly addictive, and it just destroyed many lives. Um, so, no, I wasn't. And... I had a police chief, I had a drug enforcement unit headed up by um, Captain Roger Falcone, he was recognized as one of the most honest and, you know, um, one of the most honest police officers, and they were doing, they were doing great work in the city prior to the crack cocaine explosion. And I wasn't dealing with it on a daily basis. I had a police chief. I had this drug enforcement unit, our drug enforcement unit. I would meet time at now and then with the U.S. attorney because we had a common mentor in Judge T.F. Gilroy Daly, who was a federal court judge sitting in Bridgeport, and we both considered him our mentor. And he would have us over for coffee now and then to 
you know, to discuss issues and to impress on the U.S. attorney the assistance that Bridgeport needed. But those were those were off the record meetings. We would, you know, it was just the judge's concern with two people that he mentored. One was the U.S. attorney, and one was the mayor of Bridgeport. So no, I I wasn't prepared, and I wasn't prepared to deal with law enforcement on a full-time basis, but that's what it, in 1987, it turned out to be. Whether it was dealing with our local police or begging the governor for assistance and anything, you know, any help that we could get in in dealing with the situation. As you're dealing with the war on drugs, you also obviously have to manage Connecticut's largest city. Talk to me about that, about being a mayor of a city. What, what are well, the, the challenges that Bridgeport, you face? Bridgeport's an old industrial city whose industrial base eroded over the years. Um, manufacturing, it was a, a manufacturing center. Those, man, those companies either left for overseas or subcontracted their manufacturing overseas for cheaper labor. But Bridgeport became, um, instead of a stable, middle-class town, it became a place where white flight occurred to the suburbs. The tax base was eroding, but the city's expenses were not decreasing. They were increasing. So we had budgetary problems to deal with these situations and I would explain to our suburban communities you gotta help us because we provide the social network for the entire region. Not just Bridgeport when the hospitals are located in Bridgeport, they don't pay taxes. Government buildings are in Bridgeport, they don't pay taxes, but they service the entire area. You know, that's a problem and it continues to be a problem to this day. The revenues do don't do not keep up with expenses and tax rates in Bridgeport continue to be the, the highest in the state of Connecticut and the tax burden is unfairly distributed on the less fortunate here in Bridgeport. So in trying to combat the problem, you're, you're robbing Peter to pay Paul. You're paying extra police overtime to keep them out on the streets to wage this war, but there's no revenue coming in to assist. I think it was 1988, though, one bill was passed by Congress in which for a number of years, every new police officer we hired, the there would be a federal grant that would pay for those officers. But that would be like for a three-year period, and after three years, you had to pick up the cost. So they, those were temporary solutions. There wasn't a you know, permanent flow of revenues into the city. Mayor Busey rarely imposed his will on anyone, preferring to govern by consensus. The sense of fairness and social equality rubbed off on AIDS and won him the respect of Bridgeport's press and progressive leaders, particularly black and Latino clergy. So when the clergy representing African-American and Latin interests asked for help, he stepped up. Busey visited the church only to be confronted by members of the number one family dressed in identical black suits and white shirts with ties, dark sunglasses shading their eyes. One of them asked, 
What are you going to do about us? He shouted even louder. He shouted even louder. We're doing more to help the people than you are. You ain't going to stop us. The events of that evening convinced him that local police alone would not fix this problem. It also might be the seminal event that sent Billy down a dark spiral. How crazy you was? Big enough to be considered a high road without Atlantic City. Whenever homeboy wanted to go, he sent him a plane to come down or a limo. So that, is that big yeah, enough does, for you? Yeah. Big respect in Atlantic City. He's going to here and drop money like so this. They were flying him out of Bridgeport down Atlantic City. I sent a limo for him. I don't know. Get a couple of boys, you go down there, we confiscated pictures with them sitting in Atlantic City, you know, with caviar in front of them, you know what I mean? Just you guys down there taking villain stuff or something? Oh, no. Well, I think they did have somebody go down there one time or something, but uh, I'm sorry, these are pictures that were in his home. Oh. You know, and uh, other people, you know, they're the underlings in their homes. When you look back at that period of time in your life, what would you say defined it? Was this sort of battle as a mayor at a time that... that, that was, yeah, I, that was, it had to be, you know, the, one of the highest priorities. You know, I've, I'm, I'm not a police chief. I'm not, you know, I'm not law enforcement. But, you know, I, I was overseeing, you know, the city and the police department and the police efforts were part of my portfolio as well as the dealing with the city's budgetary issues was you know a high priority too i would say those were the two two priorities but you know we were dealing with reimagining public housing in bridgeport we were at the same time while this is all happening doing some good things we were one of our notorious uh, housing projects which was high density you know, brick building, we finally came up with a plan, sold it to the Department of Housing and Urban Development, that we would eliminate, but not kick people off public housing, but eliminate private panic village, build townhouses, less density, use Section 8 housing to, you know, to assist some of the people who were being displaced, and... You know, so those things were going on too, and I've got to say, um, the crime, crime area of the East End with Father Panic Village is no longer an issue in Bridgeport. It's been replaced, and the housing is affordable. It's it's public housing. It, it's well kept. It's well managed, and the violent crime that was taking place in that housing project no longer takes place over in that area of the city. So you just couldn't concentrate on being reactive. You still had to implement measures that would transform the city in a progressive manner. Father Panic Village is a place that sort of got national news. I believe 60 Minutes did a piece on it. Was that part of your administration with Panic uh, Panic Village around at that time, Father Panic Village? Father Panic Village was named after Father Panic. <laughs> um, 
the history it was built as you know public housing uh, and also and it was it was there but it was it had to be 30 years old when I I became mayor maybe even 40s it was not being maintained by the Bridgeport Housing Authority which was a independent quasi city agency that was the recipient of the federal funds from the Department of Housing and Urban Development to maintain public housing in Bridgeport and uh, I want to tell you, you know, I was only mayor four years and each winter the boilers went out at Father Panic Village and we had to bring in these temporary boilers at the housing authority that people looked to the mayor and you couldn't say well that's a housing authority's problem because there was no heat so you had to bring in temporary boilers for Father Pan Village, P.T. Barnum Village, time and time again. And, and the reason, because there was no maintenance being done, no planned maintenance, it was all reactive. The housing had, had been run down, the funds weren't being managed properly. So the solution was, and man, it was to reimagine. New President would say, build back better. <laughs> And that's what we did with the housing. Housing in Bridgeport, public housing in Bridgeport today is not, not the issue. There's, there's one current high-density public housing left, and that's being reimagined finally and getting the federal assistance to uh, redo it. And the answer, the answer is, you know, you go back, they, they don't say it anymore. It was scattered site high housing, scattered site. People were fearful. We ran into a lot of opposition, neighborhood, but it's got, I've got to say that's one of Bridgeport's success stories. What it's Very done over the years criticize politicians. with public housing, keeping that And in living in any city, the mayor's the leader and who is looked to in success, but more often than not, in the failure of any city. Taxes, housing, policing, communities with vastly different viewpoints, urban growth, commerce, the purview of any mayor is layered and, to be honest, overwhelming. I don't think any mayor that had to govern during the crack era was ready for what he faced. While people like to define it as the war on drugs, it really was a public health crisis, a pivotal moment when city police departments not only needed federal law enforcement, but were begging for help. It was at this time inside police departments where gang units were formed, or TNT units, the tactical narcotics guys. If Billy Chase was working today, he would not have been a wolf on the streets. He would have been part of a more militarized tactical unit that did drug raids. It only is in the passage of time that you can make the argument Crack cocaine revolutionized the streets. The only thing comparable today is the opioid epidemic, a problem that America has largely ignored, and one with no real consequences for the dealers. See, the main dealers of opioids are a wealthy, white, dynastic family, not black or brown drug kingpins. <laughs> 